Well, good morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the prophecy of Nahum. And if you say who? Nahum? Uh, it's very fair to use the table of contents this morning um, because this is one of those lesser known prophets of the Lord um, who brought the word of the Lord to God's people. We just concluded a, a series that we called Flourishing Families where we looked at some biblical passages. And so now we move back through looking at these minor prophets that bring major truths about who God is and how God operates in the world. And so for the next three weeks, we're gonna be looking at, at three more of, of 12 different minor prophets as we continue just to cycle through God's word. Sometimes if you're kind of in and out because of travel or, or uh, family issues or sickness and all those kind of things, it can be like, where are we? Uh, one of my desires as your pastor is to take us in different genres of the Bible at different times throughout the year. Um, it, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with hopping in one book of the Bible and then just staying in that book for long periods of time. But I also think it can be healthy for the people of God to go to different parts of God's word. Um, during this time, not only in our Bible study hour, which is so crucial to our strategy to make disciples, but also for your personal growth um, in the Lord and, and as you're being uh, developed and, and growing in the Lord, to be able to see the different genres or types of biblical literature. And so today we turn to a passage uh, into a prophet that's lesser known. And honestly, it's because a lot of what you're, we're gonna kind of consider today is what you might call doom and gloom. Um, it's, it's a passage where it, there's really not this silver lining for the people group that's being spoken against. Um, and so that's, that's one of those realities that, that we have to kind of wrestle with, especially as we look at this cultural moment for us, where a lot of times we say, you know, we really should extend, you know, the benefit of the doubt. We should extend grace in situations while at the same time being a culture that really demands for justice and really demands for clear lines to be drawn on issues that we say are clear social justice issues. We're kind of in this tension and the people of God were in attention in this moment. And we're gonna kind of really try to explore that a little bit. But the word Nahum means comfort. His name means comfort. In other words, this prophet was meant to provide comfort to the people of God. And so we're gonna to look today, and I don't know exactly where you are, I don't know what season of life you're in, but there may be this sense that you're looking to God in your suffering, in your difficulty, and God is looking at you in this moment and through his word, he is saying, I speak to you a word of comfort. And that comfort comes directly from who he is. And so that's what we're gonna see today. Um, as you're finding your, your way to Nahum, I also wanna encourage you that tonight, I know we, we've been on over a long week and so you may be exhausted, but tonight at 7 p.m. we're gonna have another one of our series um, of big questions, looking at the nature of God's word. Dr. Corey Barnes, um, who's on, on uh, staff here with us at First Baptist New Orleans in discipleship, adult discipleship, but is also an Old Testament professor at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary is gonna be leading this discussion on the nature of scripture. And this is an important conversation. You may have already kind of settled some matters in your own heart that this is the word of God and that it's without error, uh, that it speaks truth for us today. But you may have some lingering questions about the nature of God's word. How can we trust it? Um, and, and, and questions of that sort, I invite you to come tonight to be able to hear uh, from someone who has given much time to studying God's word, understanding the nature of it, to be able to lead this time of discussion. And so that'll be at seven o'clock tonight in the fellowship hall. Well, without further ado, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. And this morning, there's only three chapters of Nahum, but what I want us to look at today is really the beginning of chapter one. And I'm going to summarize the rest of this content this morning. And so hear the word of the Lord 
in chapter one, beginning in verse one, the pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and in his fierce in wrath, the Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and it dries up and he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, even rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him, but he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood and he will chase his enemies into darkness. God, I thank you for your word today. And I thank you that through an unexpected passage like this, through an unexpected prophet, one that we know very little about, God, you provided comfort to your people in a very critical moment in their history. So Lord, in the same way, I pray that you would provide comfort to us through who you are. And that we would again find comfort where you have provided it for us as your people in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You can be seated. So I've called this series Major Truths for Minor Prophets. And so today I want us to see three major truths that come out of the, the, this, this letter, this prophecy, this vision of this man named Nahum. And so if you're taking notes today, the first truth that I wanna draw your attention to is this, and it's found in verse seven, it's, and it's this, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. And I realize that we can sometimes really bundle up that truth and broadcast it in really clear, compelling ways. For example, if I say this, God is good all the time. God is good, that's right. And so see, you've learned the cadence and that's something that in the church, we've kind of bundled up to make a little bit more memorable so that when I say God is good, you say all the time. And then I say all the time, you say God is good. And what are we doing? We are with one another reinforcing this truth that the Lord is good. We see it right here in verse seven, the Lord is good. A stronghold in, day, in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. But you know, sometimes it's the most clear and obvious and accessible of truths. Something so simple that a child could grasp that the Lord is good that are the most challenged in our lives because of difficulty. You see, for every truth that is put forward in God's word, there are at least one, if not many challenges that come fiercely at that truth that we go through in our lives and that we go through corporately as the people of God. And so today of all the challenges that I could kind of put forward, I wanna put forward the challenge that the people of God contextually from what we know we're experiencing because it's the very same challenge that I think the people of God today continue to experience when we consider this claim of God's word that's reiterated not only here in Nahum chapter one, verse seven, but throughout his word that the Lord is good. 
I believe that there's probably someone in this room right now who is questioning that statement, who is saying in their heart, is he? Would this family member be sick at such a young age if the Lord were good? Would my marriage be in the condition it's in right now if the Lord were good? Would innocent civilians in Ukraine be being killed by missile strikes from Russia if the Lord was good? Would children be starving to death in Sudan and Somalia and other countries in North Africa if the Lord is good? And what you're putting forward, maybe if you're thinking in that way and looking at some of those objections or difficulties, is you're looking at tragedy, suffering, and injustice and saying, those things seem to counter that statement, Chad, you just made, that the Lord is good. Tim Keller says it like this, in short, the problem of tragedy, suffering, and injustice is a problem for everyone. It is at least as big a problem for non-belief in God as for belief. It is therefore a mistake, though an understandable one, to think that if you abandon belief in God, it somehow makes the problem of evil easier to handle. You see, you and I, we, we wrestle with this statement, the Lord is good, And there's the temptation for you and I, and this is what Tim Keller is getting at, that if we abandon that claim, the Lord is good, that somehow starving children in North Africa gets easier. That that it's easier to stomach if the Lord isn't good. I don't know anyone in North Africa who's watching a child die, who then hears that the Lord's not good, that says, oh, this makes this easier. It's, It's not so difficult that, that cancer diagnosis for a child in my family, boy, it's easier now to receive and go through knowing that the Lord isn't good. You see, that's part of the, 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 the lie is that if you'll just buy into that way of thinking, then, then it'll deliver you. It, it'll pull you out of the suffering. It'll make it easier to go through. But what you end up with is a, is a sort of fatalism. The, the, the things are just, they are what they are. We're just, you know, there is no purpose to anything. And you end up with some of the philosophies of the world that have been developed and, and populated that have led to atrocities even as severe as the Holocaust. There's no point. And you can't call out anyone on doing wrong because what is wrong? Wrong doesn't exist. There is no God. There is no good. We just are. And we do what we do. God's word comes into the middle of our suffering and he says, I am good and I care for all who take refuge in me. Notice there is a condition that kind of meets us in this context. It's a condition that met God's people in their context because the context they found themselves was exile. The context, if if there's anything culturally right now that maybe you're familiar with that could really like give the equivalent, it would be Ukrainians who right now are outside of their country. They're in surrounding nations that are all around Ukraine. And from the look of things, they're gonna be there for a while. Things aren't getting better. If anything, things are getting worse. The the strikes are getting worse, that more civilians and children and women are being killed. 
And so you, you look at it and you say, things are getting worse and worse. Well, imagine that it goes on for 50 years. Imagine that they just take up permanent residence in places like Poland and Germany and other surrounding nations. And they stay there, then they stay there and they stay there and they wait. And then all of a sudden, a messenger from the Lord comes and says, be of comfort, one day Russia will fall. God will deal with Russia. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. To a person who's been waiting for 50 years, I say, that's nice, put it on a card, man. But I wanna see it today. I need some action today. Today, my children are growing up in poverty because I had a good job there, but I lost it. And now we're begging and having to make life work here. I need help today. Don't, don't tell me that stuff. But there were some, there were a few who chose to return to the Lord their God through these prophets, through these messages of return. The city in view, Nineveh, is the capital city of, of an empire, Assyria. And what had taken place to God's people back in 722 BC was Israel fell to Assyria. They had been overtaken. And so now Nahum comes along, probably somewhere 50 to 60 years later, somewhere between 660 and 630 BC. And he's speaking this message. And you would think, well, it's gonna happen any minute. It's not until 612 BC that Nineveh finally is overthrown and Assyria completely it ceases to exist a few years later. So you would think that this is all gonna happen in real rapid succession. We're gonna see relief today, but a whole nother generation or two of people would come and go before the full outworking of God's utterance in this passage. Can you believe God is good when you're waiting? Can you believe God is good when you don't see it in your lifetime? You see this statement, the Lord is good, we think we get it. We think we're, we, we understand it, we've embraced it. That, yep, Lord is good, God is good all the time, all the time. And we say it. But then it comes to be tested in moments when you go through tremendous tragedy and suffering and loss. That's why it's important that you remember it now. That's why it's important that you put it down now, that you remember where you can go back and look in God's word to see these things. In fact, I'd encourage you even in this moment, underline, circle, the Lord is good. So that in that moment of testing and temptation and trial and suffering that you and I are going to go through in this life, we can run back to God's word and heed his word that he is a stronghold in the day of distress and that he cares for those who take refuge in him. This is what God is inviting us to do. This is what God historically was inviting his people to do in that moment was to trust that he is good. But the second truth that God puts on display in this passage that I want us to see is this, the Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. Verse three, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. This is a truth from his word that he makes clear. But you wanna know what the challenge to that is? How long? How long? God says, the guilty I will never leave unpunished. But we say in this moment, how long? 
Ukrainians are crying out, how long? African-Americans cried out for so long, how long? And men and women trapped in human slavery today are crying out, how long? And the people of God, when governments rise up to oppress and suppress them, like we see our brothers and sisters in North Korea and in China, and we see kind of the first fruits even here in our own nation of suppression and trying to silence and to cause people to lose their job, we cry out, how long? How long, O oh Lord? How long, we say with the psalmist from Psalm 94, verse three, how long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? Because sometimes it goes on longer than you think it should. And that's when the test comes for how long, Lord, how long till I really see your goodness in the land of the living? God, how long? How long will I just have to believe by faith that you are good without seeing goodness? Because all I see is suffering. All I see is pain. God is speaking to his people in this passage that I am good and I will punish the unjust. The unjust, the injustices that you are facing, I will punish. And so they're having to hold on to this, to this tension. Remember the date, 660 to 630. And so they're gonna move forward now in history and things begin to unfold in different ways and they finally get to go back to their homeland, but it's not like it was before. There's still foreign occupation. The temple that's been destroyed is not what it once was. The people of God are, are groaning, they're waiting. They begin to make compromises. They begin to worship other gods. They, they, they float in and out of coming back to God's word of recovering it and then losing it and then recovering it and then losing it, putting more laws around it, developing spheres of people. And then you get all the way to this time later in history where there's Roman occupation and the people of God are still present in this Roman occupation. And there's different sects and groups, Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and, and Essenes and different groups that are there. And they're all kind of floating around together and they're, they're worshiping in different places, but there's arguments about that. All of these tensions going on and people are still saying, how long, oh Lord, how long? How long must we believe by faith that you are good and that you will punish the guilty? Because when we look around, we see the guilty in power. We see the guilty celebrating. We see the guilty seemingly unpunished. How long, O oh Lord, how long? And it's in that moment of waiting, a 600 year period, get this, I mean, like just understand the, the perpetual waiting of having to cling by faith that the Lord is good. And then he will indeed punish the wicked to then come to a, a humble scene in a manger where God sends the one promised, the one who will ultimately demonstrate in every capacity his goodness and the one who will himself receive the punishment for all of our injustice. This one born humbly in a manger to then grow up in a home, a home thought to be smeared with suspicion, relationships and who's the dad and all these sort of things floating around to grow up humbly 
but grow up knowing the word of the Lord, knowing that he was the son of the father, to then reach a point when the spirit proclaims through his descent and the father proclaims from heaven, this is my son, with him I'm well pleased at this moment of his baptism in the beginning of a ministry, a ministry where the goodness of God is in the advance, where the justice of God is in the advance, where we begin to see two worlds colliding and then reaching a climactic moment that is our third truth that I want us to see that Nahum, like all of the prophets before him, were ultimately pointing toward. That when we look at the prophecy of Nahum and everything that follows in this passage is that one day Nineveh will fall. And in many terms, with many expressions, it's all saying the same thing. Nineveh will fall. I will deal with the, the wickedness in this world. I will deal with the Assyrians. I will restore you. All of these promises being uttered and we see it take place. But one bad guy just exchange, it gets, gets exchanged for another bad guy. And then another bad guy and then another bad guy. And so you have the Romans who are in their day, the bad guys. And so you still see a Nineveh, Assyria type oppression of the people of God. And they're still waiting and waiting and waiting. And then Christ comes. And what does he do? How does he deal with it? How does he show the goodness of God? How does he show that God is a just God who deals with injustice? Does he come and take over with military might? Does he say, ready your swords, pull them out, boys, here we go? No, he says, put your sword away to Peter in that moment in the garden. And then like a lamb led to the slaughter, he goes to the cross. And it is on the cross as he hangs that we see in its fullness displayed the goodness of God and the justice of God. Two things that Nahum was proclaiming and other prophets were proclaiming ultimately find their fullest expression in Jesus Christ on the cross. You say, how is this good? Because he was doing it for you and doing it for me. That's his goodness. God is good. He is infinitely good. There is no darkness in him. There's no shadiness about him. All that he does is good. The characteristics that we see on display in this passage is jealousy. It's a good jealousy. It's a jealousy for his people. His vengeance is a good vengeance. It's because it's upon his enemies. It's upon the unjust, the unjust and their injustice. His vengeance is a good vengeance. His wrath is a good wrath. His goodness is on display because it all gets poured out in that moment on the cross. Jesus who knew no sin becoming sin, that we, you and me, might become the righteousness of God. That's his goodness and his justice perfectly mingled in a moment, in a death of Jesus Christ for you and for me, sinners who deserve the Ninevite punishment in this passage, but receive the Israelite rescue. That's what we get when we look at Jesus. You see, the third truth is this, the Lord's goodness and justice are fully revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Passages like this become very applicable to us because we go through very difficult things. I want you to remember one of our, our sisters and brothers in Christ this morning. 
I received a phone call last night that Herbie Bovier passed away yesterday. And so our, our dear sister Teresa and our brother Matt and Caitlin, his wife, their family are grieving this morning. And this morning and in these days and weeks ahead, you and I have a responsibility. I wanna be real time with this. Like, how do we apply this? They're going through tragedy. And so right now the tempter is going to wanna tempt them in their suffering and in their sorrow. The Lord is not good. The Lord is not good. And that this, this tragedy, this loss, it calls into question that. So what is our responsibility as brothers and sisters to one another when we have one of our own who is going through difficulty and loss and facing injustice? It is to walk with one another in love. It is not just to come and just yell truths at one another. It's not to lob them like grenades at one another. Hey, hey uh, stop, stop that complaining. The Lord is good. It's not to do that. It is to come in and to sit with one another and to wrap your arms around and to cry with one another, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, but we do it together. Everything that we are doing right now, we're calling, we're using the, the, this little tagline together, gather together, life together, all of these together ideas because we have got to do this together because the evil one wants you and me to believe this lie that the Lord is not good, that he withholds good from you and from me and that he allows injustice to perpetuate and to thrive and the wicked to celebrate and that he's not quite who we thought he was. And while there may be truth that our understanding of him is lacking, mine certainly is. That's why I need to go to the word again and again. That's why I need you, my brothers and sisters, to be like iron on iron in my life, helping me remember the truth of God's word, to challenge me when I'm out of line, to bring me back into order, and you need me to do the same. We also are to deeply love one another and hold one another and grieve with one another and remind one another in those sacred and precious moments, thanking God, God, that you are good. And God, we need you. God, we need you. You see, thousands of years ago, there was a people group, your ancestors in the faith, who were grieving the loss of children and of relatives because of war and because of being oppressed and being exiled. And God, in this passage, is doing this. With his prophet, he is getting down and he is wrapping up his people to comfort them by sending one whose name means comfort, by reminding them, telling them who he is. Brothers and sisters, our comfort has been given in Jesus Christ and we have one who truly comforts us. You see, Jesus promised that if he would leave, it would only be to send the one that he called the comforter and so if you and I are to experience comfort in this life, it will only be through Jesus Christ and through what he has done for us. That's exactly what we looked at this week with our children. It was talking about the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins. That's what we just considered. He was then buried, but on the third day, he rose again. And that's our hope. That's the hope for Herbie Bovier, is that in the day of Christ, the dead shall rise. He'll be given an imperishable body that won't be subject to health failure any longer. 
That's the hope that we have. So we grieve, Paul says, but not as those without any hope because we know what comes next. And Christ has risen into heaven with the promise that one day he will return. And the invitation to you and to me is to turn from our sin, to turn from our brokenness and our darkness and turn to God who is light, who is love, who is good and who punishes wickedness, who punishes the unjust. You see, apart from Christ, you and I stand as condemned as a Ninevite. Don't miss that. We stand as condemned as an Assyrian Ninevite in this passage. But if we be in Christ, we are forgiven. We are forgiven and made new. The old is gone, the new has come. And we experience the goodness of Christ and we bring the goodness of his comfort to this world that is hurting and suffering so much. So if you're here today and you've never done that in your life, I've come to that place where you have personally surrendered to Jesus Christ. I encourage you to make today the day of salvation. Don't wait. There's no reason really to wait. If you have questions, intellectual concerns or things you don't understand, please, please ask those questions. But what I've often found is that even if intellectual questions are answered in their entirety, I mean, whole books written on a satisfactory explanation, that does very little still to deal with the reality that you are a sinner and you are in need of forgiveness. Either that's true or it's not. If you say, I have no sin, I'm perfect, then just ask anyone in your life. Anyone. And they'll help you say, well, I don't know how to break it to you. But I do see some errors in your life, some ways that are not right. You see, it's often the one who is most addicted, who's most blind to their addiction. And that's how we are in our own pride. We become addicted to our self-image, how good we are. And we're the last to know many times just how bad off we are. But God, in his goodness, he confronts you in love and he invites you to humble yourself and come to him and find your refuge in him. He cares. He cares for those who find refuge in him. So find your refuge in him today. Let me pray for you. God, in this moment of response for each one of us, Lord, you knew what we needed to hear today from Nahum. This passage was chosen almost six or eight months ago, Lord. And so thank you that today you knew that there was someone in this room, including the Beauviers, God, who needed comfort, a comfort that only comes from you, a good and, and gracious and loving God, a God who does not leave the, the wicked and the unjust unpunished, but a God who in your goodness allowed Christ Jesus to receive all of that punishment and to pay all of that debt for us. So Lord, for the one in this room today, maybe even one of our children or youth, that you are stirring their heart, that you are causing them to see they are a sinner, but you are a forgiving God. May they run to you, the forgiver, and experience the forgiveness and comfort that only you can give. If that's you today, every head still bowed and, and eyes are closed, I just encourage you, pray a prayer like this, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you gave Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins. And so today I'm asking you, Lord, please forgive me of my sin. Please take it away. 
And please bring me into your kingdom. I want Jesus to be king of my life. I give my life to you. And I thank you that you save sinners like me. That's a prayer. That's a heart cry that God hears and he never ignores. So if that's you today, I want you to know God has heard your prayer for salvation. Your, your request to forgive you of your sin. And he desires for you to experience comfort, a comfort that comes from a family. So if that's you today, I wanna to invite you that at the end of this service to come and find me right out in the foyer. And I wanna to begin to introduce you to your family to help you to begin to grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are at work in this place and we sang earlier, you're the way maker, the miracle worker, and the greatest of your miracles is salvation. May we never forget that. That is the great miracle, that you would save sinners like me. So God, please do it again today. Do it again today, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.